Ezekiel chapter 5. Ezekiel chapter 5. The title this evening is A Sign of Coming Judgment. A Sign of Coming Judgment. This chapter opens with Ezekiel acting out another drama sermon to the people. The prophet Isaiah compared the invasion of an enemy to shaving off a man's head and beard. And in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 20, I'll read it from the New Living Translation. Isaiah said, In that day the Lord will hire a razor from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, and use it to shave off everything, your land, your crops, and your people. So Ezekiel used the same image that Isaiah did for his fourth drama sermon here in Ezekiel chapter 5. Shaving could also be a part of a purification ceremony. But the Jews had to be careful how they fixed their hair and their beards. And the priests had to be especially careful. Because these same actions of shaving and their hair and their beards and, and, uh, was the same actions that were practiced by the pagans as well. And so, uh, especially when they were mourning over the dead. So the Israelites were not supposed to imitate these same pagan practices since they were associated with a sacredness for life in the human body. And when Ezekiel, which he was a priest, shaved his head and his beard in front of everybody, the people must have been surprised. But he had to do something radical to get their attention so that they would get the message that God had for them. Shaving the head and beard would be a sign of humiliation and great sorrow and mourning. <clears throat> and that's the way the Lord felt about the destruction that was coming upon Jerusalem and the Holy Temple. By using a sword, not a razor, Ezekiel made the message even more dramatic in that an army was coming whose swords would cut down the people of the land. Now, there are two main parts to this drama sermon. First, Ezekiel was commanded to shave his head and beard. And then he was instructed on how to get rid of the hair in verses 1 through 4. Second, there's an interpretation of the drama sermon in verses 5 through 17. And this includes an application explaining what this means for Jerusalem and an explanation of God's purpose for the action sermon in verses 13 through 17. Verses 1 through 17 covers the prophetic dramatization of the limits of the destruction. And that is the shaving of the head and beard. Let's go ahead and read verse, verses 1 through 4 of Ezekiel chapter 5. And it says, And you, son of man, take a sharp sword, take it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take scales to weigh and divide the hair. You shall burn with fire one-third in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are finished. Then you shall take one-third, and he's speaking of the hair, and, and, and strike around it with the sword. And one-third you shall scatter in the wind. I will draw out a sword after them. And you shall also take a small number of them, that is speaking of the hair, and bind them in the edge of your garment. Then take some of them again, and throw them into the midst of the fire, and burn them into the fire. Burn them in the fire. And from there a fire will go out into all the house of Israel." Now, I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation to help you know, make it a little clearer. Son of man, take a sharp sword and use it like a razor to shave your head and beard. Use a scale to weigh the hair into three equal parts. 
Place a third of it at the center of your map of Jerusalem. And remember, he made that map in chapter 4. After acting out the siege, burn it there. Scatter another third across your map and chop it with a sword. Scatter the last third to the wind because I will scatter my people with the sword. Keep just a bit of the hair and tie it up in your robe. And then take some of these hairs out and throw them into the fire, burning them up. Because a fire will then spread from this remnant and destroy all of Israel. So these verses, 1 through 4, open with clear instructions for representing the next stage in the developing drama of Ezekiel's demonstrations of God's judgment. Ezekiel was commanded to take a sword and use it like a barber's razor to shave his head and beard. Just like a razor cuts hair off the face and head, the invading armies were going to come and cut off the people from the land. For a Nazarite or a priest to shave his head, that was a serious thing because their hair was the sign of their consecration to God. And that's why when Samson's hair was cut off, it was such a big deal and a terrible sin. When Samson lost his long hair, the Lord departed from him. And he was weak, just like any other man. But his power wasn't in his hair. His power was from the Lord, but the hair was the sign of his Nazarite vow, his commitment to God. The spirit who had come upon him, which was such with with such power, had now left him. And number six, verse seven says his separation to God is on his head, which literally reads because the consecration of his God is upon his head. So the basic meaning of the words is separation or consecration, but it also is used of a royal crown. Samson's long hair was his royal crown, and he lost it because of his sin. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we to obtain an imperishable crown. Jesus said in Revelation 3.11, Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. Because Samson did not discipline his body, he lost his crown and his prize. So shaving the head was normally looked at as a sign of humiliation or mourning. It was also practiced in pagan ceremonies for the dead. So this drama that, that, that Ezekiel demonstrated here, he did it in three stages. First, Ezekiel cut his, head, uh, cut his beard and his hair using a sword like a barber's razor in verse 1. And as the sword cut the hair off his head, so the sword of the invaders would soon remove the Israelites from their land. Secondly, the hair was weighed and divided into three equal parts. Weighing was a symbol of evaluation and coming judgment. And then the third stage of this demonstration, this dramatization, Ezekiel got rid of the hair in three different ways, according to verse 2. A third of the hair was burned to symbolize those who would perish soon in the destruction of the city. A third of the hair was cut up with the sword to represent civilians who would perish soon in battle. A third of the hair was thrown in the wind, picturing the Jews being scattered among the Gentiles and the exiles taken to Babylon. And then one last important act 
was keeping some of the hairs and tying them up in his robe, which represented the remnant who were the hope of the future in verses 3 and 4. So this was a sign of God's special care for a remnant of the people who would be spared in the judgment so that they could return to the land. You see, the Lord in his covenant promised that a remnant would be spared because Israel still had work to do in the world. But verse 4 suggests that anyone who was spared must not take his, his or her safety for granted because more fire could come out from God's judgment of Jerusalem. And this prophecy was fulfilled in the days after the siege of the city when innocent Jewish people were killed by deceitful criminals. So this idea of a remnant was like that of Amos when he saw the remnant of Israel like the remains of a sheep in the mouth of a lion in Amos 5.19. And the idea of a remnant appears in other Old Testament prophets also and the exile became the main subject in his, in his prophecy. So the few hairs that were saved were like the scarlet cord in Rahab's window. It was a sign of deliverance. And they were like the hem on the priest's garments that were to preserve the nation through a call to be obedient to God's commands. Now look at verses 5 and 6. He goes on to say, I find it here. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. She has rebelled against my judgments by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries that are all around her. For they have refused my judgments and they have not walked in my statutes. Now notice what he says in verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. He says this, their words being said in hurt and pain, like he's going, man, this is Jerusalem, my city, my people who are called by my name. He's saying it in hurt and pain of their disobedience. The personal God of the Hebrews had given them the city as an inheritance. God loved Jerusalem. And he loves Jerusalem today. And and he established it as the center of the world. Because his temple was there. But here, he describes the extent of his people's abominations. This is Jerusalem. It's like, you know, we would say, I can't believe this is happening. And it says, she has rebelled. My Jerusalem, she has rebelled. This refers to the people of the city who hadn't only stubbornly refused to keep God's word, his law, but whose sin was even worse, he says. Man, my people's sin, who know me, who are called by my name, their sin is worse than the pagan nations around me who don't know me. God's people had failed to follow even the moral laws that were common among the pagans pagans who didn't know God. The Lord explained why he would allow his chosen people to suffer and die so shamefully at the hands of the Babylonians. You see, as far as his eternal purposes were concerned, Jerusalem was his city. And Jerusalem was the center of the nations. Jesus said in John 4, 22, salvation is of the Jews. Israel was a privileged people. But with privilege comes responsibility and accountability. And the day of reckoning had come. It was time to pay the bills. And there was no escape from the reckoning of God. 
Israel was called to be a light to the Gentiles, to those who didn't know God, to lead them to the true and the living God. Instead, God's people accepted the wicked ways of the Gentiles and became greater sinners than their pagan neighbors. In a time when they should have been God's instruments to proclaim redemption. Instead, they were an example of rebellion against laws, God's laws and his ordinances. Look at verses 7 through 12 now. Therefore, okay, in light of what he just said, therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations that are all around you and have not walked in my statutes nor kept my judgments, nor even done according to the judgments of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God. Indeed, I, even I, am against you and will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And I will do among you what I have never done and the like of which I will never do again because of all your abominations. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst and sons shall eat their fathers and I will execute judgments among you and all of you who remain, I will scatter to all the winds. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all of your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore, I will also diminish you. My eye will not spare, nor will I have any pity. Verse 12. One third of you shall die of the pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. And one third shall fall by the sword all around you. And I will scatter another third to all the winds and I will draw out a sword after them. The people's wickedness was so bad that they couldn't even be compared in a good way with the pagan nations around them. Not to mention how they would appear with respect to God's laws. The Lord drew some effective conclusions from this fact in verses 7 through 11. God would would punish Israel openly in the sight of the nations whose evil practices they followed. And this wouldn't only chasten Israel. It would also be a warning to the Gentiles that the God of Israel is a God of justice. You know, we can look at that, that same justice today. You know, this nation and where it's going and and what's going on. Therefore, you know, where before God had been with and for his people, now he would be against them, which reminds us of that iron barrier that Ezekiel held uh, between his face and the city of Jerusalem uh, in the last chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 3. The leaders had failed the temple. I should say defiled the temple. The leaders had defiled the temple with their idols. And we're going to see more about that as we go on further in Ezekiel's prophecy. And the Lord responded by removing his favor from the people and refusing to pity his people when they were in great distress. Because you see, it it was a serious thing to defile the temple. God's sanctuary by worshiping idols in there. Practicing evil inside their very walls of God's house. In the New Testament, we learn that God now makes his home within those that are his. Our bodies are God's temple. And we defile God's temple today by allowing, you know, gossiping or bitterness or the love of money or lying or any other wrong behaviors or attitudes 
to be a part of our lives. But by asking the Holy Spirit's help, we can keep from defiling His temple. Listen to what Solomon said in Proverbs 1, verses 24 through 32. Because I have called and you refuse, God speaking, says, I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded. Because you disdained all my counsel and you would have none of my rebuke. He said, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. And when your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Why? Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and they despise my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely and be secure without fear or evil. God says, because in that day when I, you know, uh, spoke to you and, and I shared my word with you and, and, and I rebuked you and, and, and to, to do what's right, you, you had nothing to do with me. You wanted nothing to do with me. You rejected the things that I said. You were disobedient. He says, now, he says, when, because of that, when you come into your own stress, when you begin to face the consequences of your choices, of your sin, then, he says, you're going to call upon me. And that's the way it always works. We reject God. We don't want anything to do. Or we ignore God or we take him lightly. And we don't think God's going to do anything or he don't care. He doesn't see. And then when we begin to suffer the consequence. Oh, by the way, God, I I need your help. Then we go to God when things begin to fall apart in our life. And then God says, I'm going to laugh. He says, because you didn't listen to me, I'm not going to listen to you when you call upon me in your distress. Look at what God said in verse 11. He said there, notice, I will diminish you. And this can be translated, I will cut you off. Taking us back to Ezekiel's fourth action sermon. This is a serious announcement from the sovereign judge. And it's in response to the people's wickedness that the Lord says in verse 8, I am against you. And God said to Israel, I will punish you publicly while all the nations watch. Because God's people refused to be an example of righteousness and godliness. He was going to make them an example of chastening, of him disciplining them. Because of their abominations and their idolatry, God promised the severest forms of judgment abominations that were unprecedented and are unprecedented, they call for extraordinary judgment. So Ezekiel further dramatized the severity of the specified judgment uh, by what he said in verse 10. Parents will eat their own children and children will eat their parents. Now, cannibalism gives us an ugly picture, a terrible picture of war when cities were under siege. One military strategy that was used was to surround the city and cut off all of their supplies. Food, water, whatever else they needed. Then the approaching army, the the attacking army, all they had to do was sit back and wait for the people to surrender or to starve to death. This is what happened when Ben-Hadad took siege of Samaria in 2 Kings chapter 6. 
The judgment was the fulfillment of Moses' prophecy in Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy 28. That the slow but sure turning away from the true and living God and then turning to idolatry would bring about unimaginable consequences in the end. And then using another form of making an oath, God says, as I live. God swore by his own life in verse 11 that he would judge Israel. Not only was Israel guilty of idolatry and practicing all kinds of vile things that go along with idolatry, they had also brought this abominable worship into the temple of God in Jerusalem. You know, and we think about that, and later on, we're going to see the things that, that God's people brought into the sanctuary, idols that they worshiped in God's house. False idols, false gods. They brought them into God's house. Think about today. What kind of abominable things do we bring into God's house when we come and worship? May not be idols, physical idols like they did in Ezekiel's day, but it could be other kind of idols. Money, you know, whatever it might be. What kind of abominable things do we bring into our homes that are disgusting and dishonoring to God? Thinking that nobody knows. God knows. God sees. And then we can't understand why we don't receive any blessings. This is the first reference by Ezekiel to the problem of defiling the temple. And again, we'll discuss this more completely in chapter 8 when we get there. Because God's people, their sin was like, no, it was unmatched. It was unmatched, which was the reason for the unmatched judgment that they would receive. And these words of judgment are amazing when related to what's said in verse 5. This is Jerusalem. And in verse 11, he says, My eye will not spare, nor will I have any pity. You see, the greatness of God's love for his people demands a strong and severe response whenever that love is ignored or dishonored. Verses 13 through 17. God says, Thus shall my anger be spent, and I will cause my fury to rest upon them, and I will be avenged. And they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal when I have spent my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a waste and a reproach among the nations that are all around you in the sight of all who pass by. So it, so it shall be a reproach, a taunt, a lesson, and an astonishment to the nations that are all around you. When I ex- execute judgments among you in anger and in fury and in furious rebukes, I, the Lord, have spoken. When I send against them the terrible arrows of famine, which shall be for destruction, which I will send to destroy you, I will increase the, the, the famine upon you and cut off your supply of bread. So I will send against you famine and wild beasts, and they will be review. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Have you ever seen somebody, <laughs> probably have, Try to discipline a child by saying, if you do that one more time, you're going to get it. And they do it one more time, and they don't get it. 
the parent doesn't follow through with their threat. So what does a child do? You know, inside they're probably laughing. Now they don't really mean it. The child learns not to listen. Empty threats backfire. God was going to punish the Israelites for their blatant sins. And God wanted them to know that he would do what he said he would, said what he said he would do. So the people learn the hard way that God always follows through on his word. And why is it that, that we always have to learn the hard way? God doesn't see. God doesn't care. God doesn't know. He really doesn't mean it. And then when he follows through, you know, then we, we come to him. Oh, Lord, why, why is this happening to me? Don't make the same mistakes of thinking God doesn't really mean what he says. Too many people ignore God's warnings and treat them like empty threats. The closing verses here in chapter 5 give us one of the major subjects of the book of Ezekiel. And it's the nature and the character of God. Whether God acted in judgment or deliverance, his sole purpose was deliverance. His very purpose of bringing judgment or discipline is deliverance. It's redemptive. It was the whole purpose was to save. Ezekiel doesn't, I mean, God doesn't allow these, these, so, these, these things in our lives that are difficult to, to you know, to, to knock us down, to, to hurt us. He's not vindictive. That's not his purpose for allowing trials and difficult times in our life. Therefore, the sole purpose of bringing us to him to bringing us to the end of ourselves, to our wit's end, because at our wit's end is where you'll find God. Ezekiel used three words in verse 13 here to suggest God's anger decreased when he carried out his judgment. Notice Ezekiel said his anger, God's anger would be spent. Okay, God's anger would be spent. His wrath would rest and he would be avenged. It's saying only then will, God said only then when he's carried out this judgment will I calm down and let my anger cool. He says, then you'll know that I was serious about this, this, what I said all along because I am a jealous God and I'm not to be trifled with. So see, God was eager to judge the people, justify his holiness and righteousness. Again, for the purpose of in the hopes that it would bring them to redemption. God's passion works in two ways to encourage redemption. It moves him. God's passion moves him to punish sin, to redeem and to restore a remnant in case the unbelieving nations would question his faithfulness. That is, if he wiped everybody out. Because he said, hey, I, I'm, they're my chosen people. I'm their God. But if he wiped them all out, well, because he said, I will always have a remnant, then they'd question his faith. Oh, wait a minute. He said this, but he didn't, he didn't do it. Verse 13 contains the first use of the expression, I, the Lord. And, and, and many times when he says, I, the Lord, it's often joined with, they shall know. I, the Lord, is used 72, 72 times by Ezekiel. And God's actions were done so that everybody might know him. 
and why he does the things that he does in order to know his character, his true character. And learning this about God was always associated with either his judgment or his grace, either one. And the reaction of the nations was a commentary. It said a lot about Israel's failure to fulfill their role as God's covenant people, God's chosen people. Instead of them being a witness, instead of them telling everybody about God's love and His holiness and His righteousness and His desire to save all the nations, notice what verse verse 14 says. That they would be a waste and a reproach in verse 14 and 15 and a taunt in verse 15. Lesson, a lesson that is a warning and an astonishment. They would be an object of horror. That's what the people would be instead of a light to the other nations. They would be a waste, a reproach, a taunt. They'd be a lesson to the other people about the disobedience of God. And they'd be an astonishment, an object of horror. Ezekiel emphasized how severe God's judgment would be in order to show how God's purposes for salvation of the nation had been hindered by Israel's rebellion. Instead of being that light about the greatness of God, the goodness of God, the holiness of God, and bringing people to God, they hindered those people. Just like many times, and I've shared it before, how we as Christians, who are to be a light to this dark world, this lost world, how we're to be a light based on how we behave and act in front of them, It turns them away. Instead of drawing them towards God, many times because of our disobedience to God or whatever it might be that is not godly, we turn people away. And then they mock Christians, they mock God, they mock Christianity. Because we hinder the work that God is wanting to do using us. God's plan for saving the nearby nations was why God chose Israel. And this this was their their call. This responsible role of God's chosen was a major subject in Ezekiel's preaching and all the prophets' preaching. Jesus expressed the same idea in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, when he said, For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more especially those who have been chosen to reveal to others God's plan of salvation. And to unbelievers who know a lot about what God's word says about salvation, they're going to have to answer for not responding to what they know. And as a priest, Ezekiel would have been familiar with the warnings that God gave in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. These warnings... He says, I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation and I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. I will bring the land of desolation and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. Leviticus 26, 31 to 32. And again, Moses would be familiar with with these verses. And then this one, Deuteronomy 28, 32 through 33. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people and your eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all day long. And there shall be no strength in your hand. A nation whom you have not known shall eat the fruit of your land and the produce of your labor, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually. 
Even though Israel is standing right on the threshold of God bringing his judgment described in those passages, Ezekiel was still able to warn Israel for the last time. And comparing verse 16 and 17 with those passages, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 32, it suggests that, Israel, that Ezekiel understood the true nature and purpose of God's coming judgment. Because Ezekiel was able to warn Israel for the last time, it might have been because he thought judgment could somehow be turned away if the people repented. Judgment is often severe and without mercy. Even though God has a redemptive purpose for judgment in life, justice brings destruction and death. As Paul said in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. In closing, James Boyce said this about Romans 6.23. He says, he says, I like the way Charles Spurgeon ended this sermon on Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 3. Spurgeon referred to the question God asked Ezekiel when he stood in the valley of dry bones. God said to Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live again? Ezekiel said, Oh Lord God, you know. Now he was probably thinking, or we were probably thinking, oh, no way are these old bones here going to live. But Ezekiel was smart. He said, Oh Lord God, you only know. But when Ezekiel was told to preach to the people, and he did, those dry bones came together. They took on flesh. They rose up, and they became a great army. And you see, this is what happens. This is what has to happen, I should say. This is what has to happen if you're to be delivered from sin, like Spurgeon said. Because the wages of sin is death, and spiritually speaking, you're as dead as those dry bones. No one but God can bring life out of death. Jesus was the resurrection and the life. He was the proof of that. No one but Jesus can make your dead bones live. God can do it, and he will do it when you come to him. And you know what? You need to come to him now. As Paul said, today is the day of salvation. Today is the accepted time. Yesterday's gone. You'll never get it back. Tomorrow's not here. You may not make it tomorrow. All you have is right now. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. Thank you for this. Lord, and it's always just a wonderful passage. God, your word. Every page, every chapter, Lord, every Every lesson is mighty, Father, full of, of application, God. You know, and if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, don't take him for granted like God's people did here in chapter 5 of Ezekiel. Don't think he doesn't see what you do or doesn't care what you do that he ignores it, that he's all talk and no action. Jesus said, we must be saved. And only Jesus Christ can save. And if you're here tonight and God's word is spoken to you and 
you recognize, hey, I need Jesus. I need to be saved. I need to quit flirting with God in the sense of not taking Him serious and doing my own thing. And that you need to make a commitment to Him. If you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to pray this prayer out loud. And you repeat it to the Lord with all of your heart. And pray after me, dear Jesus, please forgive me, Lord, for all of my sins. I confess to you, I am a sinner. I want to receive you as my Lord and my Savior. And fill me now with your Holy Spirit and help me to walk and follow after you all the days of my life. And thank you, Lord, for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.